It's good to see each one of you. Welcome. I hope we can all be here a couple of weeks from now for the potluck. As I announced a couple of Sundays ago, something kind of special today of the message. Notice the name of it, Bullseye Truths. Don't think I've ever named a message that before. Some of these things you will already have heard, I'm sure, but they're very important. And reviewing truths is a valuable thing to do. Well, what might be these bullseye truths? First of all, who Jesus is. That's very important to know who he is. Now, we sang about his name and how great it is. The J-E of Jesus means Jehovah. In other words, God, one of his names. The S-U-S part basically means saves. So it means Jehovah saves or God saves. Now, that leads us to investigate this thing. Is Jesus really Jehovah God? Is he God Almighty? Well, let's go to the Gospel of John. John, as you know, was one of the great disciples, and he seemed to be specially loved by Jesus. And at the Last Supper, he was leaning over on his chest He doesn't name himself as the author of the Gospel of John, but evidently it is John himself. I think out of humility, he kept his name out of there. (laughs) But at any rate, the very, very beginning of this important Gospel proclaims that Jesus is God. First time I ever heard of this, I was 14 years old. I was appalled that anyone would think that Jesus was God. Thank God, some years later, I came to accept that, yes, indeed, he is. (laughs) Well, this gospel, this beloved gospel of John, begins with that very truth. John 1.1 starts like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. So he was with God and he was God. All things were made by him. Well, who made everything? God did, of course. All things were made by him, and apart from him, there was not anything made that was made. Jesus made everything. Now you might say, it doesn't say Jesus, it says the Word did this. Well, we learned that the Word is Jesus, because dropping down to verse 14, John 1.14, it says, And the word was made flesh and lived among us or tented among us. 
and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then he's named in verse 17, for the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. So we see that this word who is God and who made everything in the very beginning of the chapter is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ who became a person. He took on flesh. He tented in a body. John highlights his deity again in chapter 8, verse 58. John 8, 58. Jesus said to them, <clears throat> I tell you most assuredly, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, Abraham lived about 2000 BC. Jesus said, before he was, I am. <laughs> Not merely I was, I am. Now remember when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, I am that I am, God said. Jesus is God. And they understood him to be saying that very thing. They who knew the language, they who knew the situation and the culture, they understood he was claiming to be God. How do we know that? Well, go on to the next verse there. Then they picked up rocks to throw at him. <laughs> they thought it was blasphemy. They didn't believe it. But carrying forth this same thought, go over to chapter 10, if you would. <clears throat> chapter 10, we find beginning in verse 30. He said, I and my father are one. Then the Jews picked up stones again, like they did before there in chapter 8, to stone him. Jesus answered them, many good works I've showed you from my father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, for a good work we do not stone you but for blasphemy, because that you, being a man, make yourself God. They knew exactly what he was saying. He was making himself God, but he was God, so he rightfully could reveal that truth. They wanted to stone him to death. They didn't believe it. <laughs> Thank God we do believe it. And he's Jehovah God come down, God saves the name of Jesus. So this is a bullseye truth, a very central, important, basic, foundational truth that the Lord Jesus Christ is God come down. Now it does mention the Father here. Holy Spirit is also involved. It's Jehovah God, but it's one God revealed in the New Testament as Father, Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. So this is the first basic truth, the bullseye truth that we would think about today. It's foundational to Christianity, to our faith, who Jesus truly, really is. He's God himself. Secondly, 
what Jesus told us needs to happen if we are going to see God's kingdom. What must happen, he says, if we are to see God's kingdom. Well, what might that be? Go over a page or two, if you would, to John chapter 3. One of the leading Jewish people, his name was Nicodemus. He came to Jesus one time, and Jesus revealed this to him. Let's read about that. John 3 came to Jesus by night, it tells us in verse 2. And he said, Rabbi, Rabbi means teacher. Teacher, we know that you are a teacher come from God because no man can do these miracles that you are doing unless God is with him. Now that's interesting. He said, we. They recognized that mighty miracles were being performed. So now Nicodemus seeks him out in a private kind of way. Jesus answered and he said to him, now here's where we find out this bullseye truth. I tell you most assuredly, unless a man be born again, he's talking about spiritual birth, that can also be translated, unless a man be born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now that's quite a statement. He said, unless a person experiences this spiritual rebirth, it's impossible to see God's kingdom. Well, Nicodemus wonders about it. What's he talking about here? Nicodemus says to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? That sounds pretty ridiculous. This, what do you mean? Jesus answered, I tell you most assuredly, unless a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born from the flesh is flesh. And that which is born from the spirit is spirit. Now some people go with this water and spirit thing of verse Five, and they say, oh, that's baptism. But he's talking about that which is born of the flesh is flesh. I believe he's talking about physical birth. The water breaks and the birth happens. There must be the natural birth. There must be the birth of the spirit. The first one is not enough. We have to be born spiritually thereafter by the Holy Spirit. This is what I believe he's telling Nicodemus. You must have this spiritual birth from heaven. Don't be amazed that I told you, verse 7, you must be born again. You must have this spiritual birth by the Holy Spirit. How do we know? Well... He uses quite an analogy here in verse 8. The wind blows where it wants to, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it's coming from and where it's going. So is everyone who is born 
of the Spirit. Now, the wind, it's kind of mysterious in a way. You see the effects of it. You may feel it, but you don't see it. And yet you know it's real, don't you? Often the meteorologists on the TV are telling us it's going to be so much wind at such a place at such a time and so on and so forth. Wind is real. It's somewhat mysterious, but it is actually there. So the spiritual rebirth, it's real. There are things about it that may seem kind of unknowable, and yet it's true. Just like the wind is really there, though we don't see it, but we see effects. And that's the truth when we come to Jesus. There's a reality, there's a real change, there's a spiritual birth. My mother, years later, she told me that my personality changed when I became a Christian. I suspect some of my personality still remained, but basically I was a new person, a different person. I'd been born again by God's blessed Holy Spirit. So the first bullseye truth is that Jesus is God. And the second bullseye truth is that for a person to see God's kingdom, he or she must experience this spiritual birth. Verse 3, verse 7. But there's another thing then that comes into play here. Number three on your outline. How spiritual rebirth happens. Okay, Jesus is God. Spiritual birth must happen. What do we have to do? How does it occur? It does mention the Holy Spirit prominently there in chapter 3, what we've read. But what, do we, what happens? How do we experience this spiritual rebirth? And notice it's involved with God himself, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. Well, interestingly enough, as a part of this interview with Nicodemus, we read further on, and it tells us how the spiritual birth occurs. It's only reasonable that after telling him it needs to happen, that then he explains what we have to do, that God might cause the spiritual birth to happen with us. Well, he begins to talk about that in verse 14, John 3, 14. Most of us know John 3, 16, maybe all of us. And we may not realize this is all an extension of the same interview with Nicodemus. That after he told Nicodemus, you have to experience a spiritual birth, here's how it happens. Okay, let's look. What did he say? Beginning in verse 14. And like Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, even so must the Son of Man himself be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have, what? Eternal life. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 
because God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but instead that the world through him might be saved. Notice verse 18. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who does not believe, he's already condemned because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And then John the Baptist highlights this in the last verse of the chapter, verse 36. He who believes on the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe on the Son, or he who is disobedient to the Son, shall not see life, but the wrath of God rests upon him. So particularly there in verses 18 and 36, we see how clear it is. And then in John 3, 16, and then back in verse 15, it's believing in Jesus that brings salvation not only believing about him, but trusting in him. It isn't just something intellectual in our heads. It's a matter of trust, dependence upon him. An illustration I've used before is, what are you doing now? Well, you're sitting <laughs> on pews you're trusting the pews to hold you up. <laughs> and they're doing a pretty good job of it. So it is then we trust in Jesus. We depend on Jesus. We put our weight on him. Our soul rests, trusts in him. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now what about this business about Moses and the snake? <laughs> Well, let's see what it's referring to. Nicodemus would certainly have known this Old Testament incident very well. He was a teacher and he knew the old scriptures. Back in Numbers chapter 21, let's read about what Jesus was referring to here. <clears throat> Numbers 21, beginning in verse 4. And they journeyed, they were in the desert here after escaping Egypt. They journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was very discouraged because of the way. It was probably kind of hard and hot and what have you. So they were really discouraged. And the people spoke against God and against Moses, the leader, now, they must have really been discouraged, and now they really overstepped and actually spoke against God and against their leader, God-appointed Moses. What they say? Huh. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Because there's no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul can't stand this light bread, meaning the, the manna that he would give them daily, basically. It tastes terrible. We're in a horrible situation here. So they spoke against God and they spoke against Moses. And God didn't like that. Verse 6. And the Lord sent fiery serpents, meaning they were colored like a bright yellow 
reddish, fiery color. The Lord, Jehovah, sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many people of Israel died. So this was a judgment for their speaking against him and against Moses. Many people died, it says, very poisonous snakes. Therefore, the people came to Moses and they said, three very hard words to say, we have sinned. <laughs> they admitted it. That's good when people admit that they've sinned, and we all have. Because we have spoken against the Lord and against you. So now they recognized and they named what they'd done wrong. It's a good way of doing it spoken against God and against you. Then they had a request. Pray to the Lord, pray to Jehovah, that he take away the snakes from us. Well, that was a reasonable thing to ask. They probably figured those that were already bitten and hadn't died yet were, were goners. And Moses prayed for the people. Now what God tell him? This is very interesting and quite unique. And the Lord said to Moses, you make a fiery snake and set it on a pole. And it shall happen that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. And Moses made a snake out of brass. You see, when he said make a fiery snake, brass is a fiery color. So that's what Moses did. He made a snake out of brass. And he put it on a pole. Pole, by the way, is made from a tree, it's wood. And it happened that if a snake had bitten any man, when he looked at the snake of brass, what's it say? He lived. Now, normally you don't find people cured of snake bite that way, do you? <laughs> say a rattlesnake bites you, you normally go to the doctor and get certain kind of anti-venom and Maybe sometimes uh, people would cut it and try to suck it out and spit it out. Sometimes they'd die, sometimes they'd live. Did they have to do something like that? <laughs> no, not at all. What did they have to do? What did it say? Look at the snake. You'll live. They did. And it happened. This was a miracle. A mighty miracle. So those who were alive yet and had been bitten, all they had to do is look at the snake, the brass snake. And God did a mighty miracle. Snake bite cure. Made completely well. Judgment taken away. Beautiful illustration. You see, if you think about the whole thing, you recognize that the bitten Israelite, the one who's bitten with a real snake, he represents those bitten by sin, those who are sinners, which is everybody except Jesus. So they represent fallen humanity. And the wages of sin is what? Romans 6, it's death. So we're all pictured here in the bitten Israelite who is scheduled to die. But what they have to do 
in order to be cured. We've said what it was. Just look at the metal snake. Then he talks about believing in Jesus. So looking at the metal snake represents believing in Jesus. It represents trusting in the Lord. And what a beautiful illustration that is. How could you describe faith any more beautifully and adequately than simply that? They didn't have to offer God good works. They didn't have to do anything except one thing. And that was look at the metal snake. They did and they were. They were healed. And so it is with us. It's not anything we can do. It's something that God does. We look in faith to the Lord Jesus like they look to the metal snake and we are healed spiritually. We experience the spiritual birth, the new birth, this change of life. If any person is in Christ, he's a new cre creation, tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. I mentioned about the pole made out of wood, made from a tree. <clears throat> in the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy chapter 21, it tells us that he who is hanged on a tree is cursed. Apostle Paul inspiredly picks this up in Galatians chapter 3, applies it to Jesus. When he died on the tree, he died on the cross, he was cursed in our place. Our sins were laid upon him. We find that he paid the penalty. He took the fires of judgment. And so we come back to the thought that the snakes were bright yellow, orange, whatever it was, represented by the fiery brass snake in color, speaks of judgment. Jesus was judged in our place on the cross. And so he is represented there by the snake of all things. How could God's holy, sinless son of God be represented by a snake, a poisonous snake? Well, notice very clearly, tells us in Romans 8, verse 3, that Jesus was made in the likeness of men, and yet, of course, he had no sin. The metal snake was made in the likeness of the poisonous snake, but had no venom. So Jesus, the sinless one, took the fires of judgment upon himself. He became a sin offering. He became like sin for us. We find this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He was made sin that we might be made the righteousness of God. So this is really amazing when you put it all together. I hope you'll think about this and maybe read it several times and go back to 21 of Numbers and see how God used this. And what an apt illustration for Nicodemus. I've speculated, and of course this is pure speculation, maybe Nicodemus had recently, even that day, read about Moses and the snake and prayed to God, what does this really mean? 
Maybe that happened. I can't say it did, of course. But wouldn't it have been wonderful if he had prayed about that passage and now Jesus reveals these truths to him. So then we find three basic truths. Jesus is God. What needs to happen is the spiritual rebirth if a person is to see God's kingdom. How does it happen? It happens by looking away to Jesus, to trusting in the Son of God, to depend upon him and not ourselves to be forgiven and receive eternal life. Now, having said that, let's go to an example of someone who really trusted Jesus. Maybe you can think in your life of people who had dramatic changes in their life. Maybe they had a real problem with drink or drugs or something else. Or maybe they thought they were so good they didn't need to be saved. And then you saw a change in them. You saw they became very much a different person, a new person, a person trying to follow God. There are a lot of illustrations that might be used. A drunkard becoming a Christian, maybe found the Lord at Skid Row through a rescue mission. Somebody else found the Lord. The one I've chosen is one we talked about last Sunday. I've chosen one of the apostles named Thomas. Well, what happened to him? Well, let's read about it again here. Go back a few pages to, or rather ahead a few pages, to John chapter 20. You see, the apostle Thomas was not with the other apostles that first Easter night when Jesus came and appeared to them when he let them know positively that he was really alive. He had them touch him. You can't touch ghosts. You can't feel them. He said, I have flesh and bones. They touched him. They felt him. Sure enough, he was real. He wasn't a ghost. In fact, he even said that. I'm not a ghost. <laughs> and then he ate some food in front of him to doubly prove that he was really bodily raised from the dead. And so the apostles, they knew that Jesus was indeed alive, and they gave their subsequent lives to serve him. Most, if not all of them, died martyrs' deaths. But Thomas, you see, wasn't with them that first Easter night. And so they told Thomas about that. We saw him. We touched him. He's really alive. And Thomas basically said, no way am I going to believe that. He really felt very disillusioned. Here he'd given a lot of his life, perhaps three years, to serve Jesus. And the interesting thing is he probably had miracles performed through him when Jesus sent out the 12. And yet now, he doesn't believe. In fact, he figured, I'm going to really put the Lord to the test here. I'm going to put God to the test. I'm going to prove that he's not alive. He said, unless I can put my finger in the nail prints, unless I can put my hand into the side, no way. I'm not going to believe that. It's interesting, though, that he was still associating with the other apostles. But you see, Jesus knew what he had said way back when. And so then what happened? 
an act of great grace by the Lord reaching out to Thomas. Verse 26, chapter 20. After eight days, again, his disciples were within. They were in, apparently, that upper room. And Thomas was with them. Then Jesus came. This is interesting. The doors were shut. And he stood in the middle of it. And he said, peace be to you. Then he says to Thomas, reach here your finger. And look at my hands and reach here your hand and push it into my side and don't be faithless but believing. And Thomas answered and he said to him, My Lord and my God. See, Jesus <laughs> acceded to his demand. Thomas was given absolute proof that Jesus was alive. Augustine said something to the effect that he was permitted to doubt so that we need not doubt. Yes, this is absolute proof, not only for Thomas, but for all of us as well. And we, like Thomas, can also say, my Lord and my God. Now, if that weren't true, don't you think Jesus would have corrected him? Certainly he would have. But what did happen? Verse 29, Jesus says to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. So he accepted what he said. He was right. He is Lord and he is God. And it's proof positive that he's alive again. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us basically if he's not alive, it's futile. Our faith is futile. We're not forgiven. We're still in our sins. It isn't true. But after it says that, it affirms that he is. <laughs> he's alive. And it also listed a bunch of people that saw him alive in the new body. Yes, Thomas now believed. But then what happened? Thomas, like the others, lived for Jesus. In fact, probably Thomas went further afield from Jerusalem than any of them. Thomas, according to history, apparently went to Babylon and Peter may have been there, probably was also, and did missionary work there in Babylon. But then Thomas went further east into what is India. And there are churches there today that claim Thomas as their founder. And we believe he was martyred near the area of Madras over in the eastern part of India. But in southern India, over there, maybe up around even the western coast and perhaps even among the people of Kashmir area, people claim that Thomas had reached them and brought the message to them. So his subsequent life proved the reality of his faith. He really believed now what he said, my Lord and my God. 
the only reasonable thing, if that is true, then is to commit ourselves to him, to, like he did, trust in Jesus, to experience the new birth, to experience a new life, and to spend the rest of our lives living for God. And that brings us the greatest happiness and fulfillment and assurance that you might find possible. Especially when people get older, they may think about, well, how am I going to leave this world? Of course, if we know if Jesus comes, we don't have to die. We'll be changed and we'll be taken. But what about if we die before that happens? Well, we've got to trust God with those things. Leave it in his hands. Know that he'll be with us, whatever the situation may turn out to be. So we exercise faith. Now, what happened to Thomas? According to tradition, he was martyred there, as I said, in the area of Madras. Apparently, some religious fanatics paid somebody, and they caught him in prayer, and they killed him with a lance. And we believe that his tomb, is his burial location, is right there near, near Madras. He gave his life to Jesus. What is a physical life? We're all going to leave this world one way or another. <laughs> he left it by trusting Jesus, who is alive again and who promised that every believer not only will receive eternal life and forgiveness of sin and help in our lives day by day as we live our lives down here, but someday we'll get new bodies like Jesus' body. And that kind of blows your mind when you really think about it. Last verse of Philippians chapter 3 talks about that. You might want to read that verse and really study it. Believers will someday get a glorious body like Jesus's, And so we trust him, not only to live our lives, the abundant life, hopefully day by day, but to die for him in faith, trusting him, knowing that when we leave this body, we're with the Lord. And we should be with fellow Christians in eternity, including family that have trusted the Lord. What wonderful promises these are. And so then we come to the final thing here on the sheet, a question to ask. What might that question be? <laughs> What about me? So it calls us to examine ourselves. It calls us to put our faith in Jesus, to turn away from the wrong things in our life and put our lives in his hands. And he promises that whoever will call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Romans chapter 10. May we pray. Thank you for these bullseye truths. Thank you for the reality that we've been talking about today. How it helps the things of this world to fade in importance to us. And yet we know we are to live in this world as you give us strength and guidance and help in all things. And we would seek to do this. But thank you so much that we may trust you. That we may look away from self and sin and look to you and be healed. Thank you that Jesus, 
is the one who is in the likeness of men yet without sin and yet became sin for us, took the punishment that we deserve and provides the righteousness that we need. Thank you, Lord. It's all through faith in you, all a gift of God's grace. Help us, Lord, even now to fully trust in Jesus. In your name we pray, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son and Messiah. Amen.